Well, good morning. We're going to get rolling here today. We have two weeks left, including today of Revelation. We are at the end. We are literally like last page of the Bible. What I want to invite you to do is open up to Revelation chapter 21. And what I'd like you to do in the next, I'm talking like 90 seconds max, read Revelation 21 and 22 as fast as you can. You're not trying to get every detail here. Read Revelation 21 and 22, and I'm going to give you the stop mark on 22. You can read it up to, yeah, just read the whole thing. Read in both chapters as fast as you can, and then we'll circle back up uh, and get going. So these last two chapters of the Bible here, what are, we, uh, what are we reading? We see that Jesus is coming soon. I think he has a different definition of what soon means than what a lot of us operate with. But that's what he says. And we'll get into some of that next week. What I want to talk today about is more the imagery. Now, we've come off of this deep talk through like all the millennial stuff of Exodus, of Revelation chapter 20. But here we're coming to the end. And what are we basically reading about? It's the end of the world and the ushering in of a new world. And we're reading about the end of heaven and the ushering in of a new heaven. And we're reading basically about, if you're perceptive to the imagery of what's going on, Eden is being restored. Think Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. All the imagery that you have here in Revelation 21 and 22 is alluding back to that along with its development along the way. So, a couple of weeks ago, handed out some paper and we charted a whole bunch of different viewpoints on what the end would look like. But we focused on something called the millennium, which you find in Revelation chapter 20, in different views about what this millennium is. Is this a thousand-year period before the new heavens, new earth, like the end-time thing comes? Is it simultaneous with it? What are we to expect? Now I want to jump past that to the very end and chart out what Revelation is doing on a complete biblical trajectory. So, I found this to be a helpful exercise. It is helpful for me. I'm going to invite you to take a piece of paper. If you need a pen, I'm going to invite you to take as many as you want. All right? And if I could have someone that could just kind of like start, Ben, can I put you to work? You got it? Thanks, brother. Just start working the crowd here. Thanks so much. What I really encourage you to do is if you want to learn this, actually chart it out while I am charting it here. Because again, by actively participating, by actually doing it rather than just looking at it, it's going to stick, I think, a little bit better, and it'll make more sense. What I want to do is lay out the entire biblical storyline because it roots itself in Genesis and Revelation, and you'll see how if you have those two poles, what everything in between is trying to do. I'm going to give them about another 30 seconds to get those out. And I think I'm going to go in green, and I'll just coach you through this as we go. So, did you notice in reading Revelation chapter 21 and 22, there was a lot of talk about trees? You had the trees that are going to produce their fruit, and they're going to give their leaves for healing of the nations, and there was a lot of tree talk. Did you notice that, reading it through, more or less? Did you also notice there was, like, river talk? Lots of water going on, but not like big oceans and lakes and things like that, but these, these streams that are going to cut through. 
if in your own time you go back and read Revelation, or rather Genesis 1 through 3, you're going to likewise see a lot of tree talk and a lot of river talk. The tree talk probably comes to mind more readily. What are the key trees in Genesis for those of you who remember the story? We got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. You have two big prominent trees that the storyline hinges around in Genesis. And here we are in Revelation with trees again. The lesser known one, but if you go back and read it, it's kind of fascinating, is the river talk that you see in Eden. Because flowing out of Eden is basically the headwaters of these rivers that go and will stream out into the earth and it talks about how it goes into these regions and as it goes into these regions they're like oh this region is known for its like gold and fine gems and this region is known for its resins and aromatic wood and like just you're getting richness abundance stuff like that well did you notice here we also have a stream cutting through but rather than the precious commodities being out there to where the river flows, they're here. Are you seeing some of the parallels going on? Revelation 21 and 22 is intentionally paralleling Eden to communicate something significant about what heaven is or what the end time hope for a Christian is, what the biblical hope is. So let's chart it so you see what's exactly going on. And what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to start with a line, not quite in the middle, but maybe just south of center, and you're going to make that line just long enough to write the word Eden on. If you can't read this because it's too small, I don't know what to tell you. I can't really do it bigger. I'd love to get it up there. We just don't have the technology, believe it or not. So, we start with Eden. If you want to put in parentheses Genesis 1 through 3, that's where it would anchor in the Bible. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of like quizzing, so to speak, as we go to help jog your memory. If you're like completely clueless on some of this or just don't know, don't feel bad on that. Um, just do your best to kind of follow along and hopefully you'll get the biblical storyline. What is the significant event that happens in Genesis 3? The fall into sin. Serpent comes, he tempts Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in so doing, they rebel against God, and there's certain, certainly something literal there as the story portrays it, but certainly something even deeper, more transcendent and metaphorical going on in all of this, and in this rebellion they have against God, basically all that God had created good falls into ruin. Or maybe better put, it gets tainted. If you're a computer guy, it gets a virus. And the virus is going to work itself through God's entire creation program and start messing it up. If you're into chemical engineering or something like that, you got something bad in the batch. If you're into cooking, someone put arsenic in the recipe, all right? Basically, whatever God has made good is still good, but now it is poisoned. And that poisoned is ruining all of God's intent of what Eden was. So let's do this as fast as we can for 60 seconds. When you envision Eden in your mind or think back to the story, tell me what it looks like. Paint a picture for me. Go. You see fruit trees. You see daisies. You see what? 
just very green. It's lush. It's verdant. So you like forests and prairies and stuff like that. Flowers, rivers, sunshine. Really colorful. What else? Keep going. Birds and animals, and you said at peace. And squirrels that don't eat birds. Do squirrels normally eat birds? Oh, they eat the bird food. Squirrels that don't eat bird food. Yeah, there's, there's something. You, you, you've got something going on in your soul over there. That's a, that's a battle in your garden. This is what you see, right? Fellowship with God. Yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. Talk to me. Naked. Talk to me about people. We see people, right? Or at least two people. They're, they're in love. They're naked. What else? No evil. Right, keep going. Peaceful, no pain, right? Right, we don't see pain. Uh, someone said green earlier. Do you see weeds? No, no, no one sees weeds in Eden, well, right? Probably they're probably not called weeds, right? Because you like them. Here's my point to it. Do you realize how everything you just described, with rare exception, was very physical? The picture in the beginning is not spiritual, ethereal, disembodied, but it is a highly, highly idealized physical reality. Now, I'm not going to get into this too much, but what I just want to share with you is that the picture of Eden being presented in Genesis 1 through 3 in many ways resembles an ancient Near East temple. I think of a temple, and I think of a stone-cold, hard, dreary, drab kind of place. But what you need to think of in the ancient Near East is a place that is lush and verdant and green and wonderful like your favorite national park, okay? What happens in Genesis 3, and I'm going to mark it there, is we have now a split in our line. This is going to go up there. That's going to go down here, and you can do something like that. Do not go further than half the page. All right? What we have going on in this line, the top represents heaven. The bottom represents earth. The fact that you now have two lines, the top being heaven, because we always think of heaven as up, and the bottom being earth, there wasn't two lines in Eden, which would suggest what? It was all one. Heaven and earth were not separate realities or entities. Heaven and earth were enmeshed together. And based on what we talked about last week, why? Because heaven is not good real estate that God happened to find. Heaven is where God lives. And if God is living here in the garden, so to speak, Heaven is there in the garden. Heaven and earth are ripped apart. They are divorced. The one has become two again as a result of Genesis chapter 3. Does that make sense? And so what we have is this separation and the entire timeline or storyline of the Bible is simply this. That which has been ripped apart God is going to fix. So if you want to know what the Bible is about, it's basically this story. Know Genesis 1 through 3. Know what that signifies at its deeper levels. And understand that this is the central conflict that the rest of the storyline is looking to resolve. God, the entire plot, 
How does God or how does life or whatever fix that problem there? And so what we're going to use as an anchor point here is a big cross. And you could put a big cross there as long as it's marrying heaven and earth. Now, from Genesis 3, and this is now the whole Old Testament, right? We have this separation between heaven and earth, and God, in essence, kind of working a sort of rescue operation, seeking to bring about the reconciliation of the divorce, if I can keep using that language, if you will. But that doesn't mean God has left it completely, like, like separated. There are inroads being made from heaven to earth. And there's dozens of these, and this is much of what the Old Testament is about, but I'll just share some of them with you. Things like the temple or the tabernacle, things like the promised land, things like the messiahs, and yes, I mean that plural on purpose, the prophets and priests and kings that God had raised up and orchestrated, things like the signs and wonders that God is doing to break in from heaven to earth. All of these things and more are recon missions or like insurgent thrusts or like SEAL team attacks from heaven into earth trying to bring the two together again. The sacrificial system is a great example of this. All of these are bridges, if you will, between the fissure. And all of these can be summed up in 12 basic hopes or characteristics, if you will, of what they are looking forward to when Eden is restored. Now, you can jot these down in a side margin on the back or wherever you want. I'm going to go through them quickly, but I think they're going to make sense as I say them if you know or have familiarity with the biblical storyline. They could be divided into 10 positives and two what I would call, ew, negatives, all right, or things that we tend not to like, but they're supposed to be good news. Let me go through it. The hopes are things like this. God is going to dwell with people again because when the divorce happened, God doesn't dwell with people. That's why heaven and earth are separated. Forgiveness is going to be poured out in spades, full forgiveness of sins. All the sin that stands against us and creates this fissure, boom, it's going to be forgiven. Three, God's spirit is going to be poured out on people. Four, we see through the Old Testament that God is going to orchestrate this through David's son, King David. One from David's line is going to be the one to usher in this new era, age, kingdom. Call it what you want. We see some other things that are going to happen. Creation is going to be restored. Creation's under a curse. Heaven is no longer here to keep away the weeds. The weeds are all over in this world. Creation is going to be restored. Six, God's people are going to be changed. And that's holistically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, disposition of nature and will, physically. Along with that, restoration and change comes this. The dead will be raised. On the heels of that, you could talk about this. God's people are going to return to the land, the promised land, the land of milk and honey. 
On top of that, you can add this, that Gentiles will now be a part of that. It's not just for the people of Israel, which are, by the way, God's agents. I should have mentioned them as another bridge, right, of bringing his restoration. But it's not just for them alone. It's not exclusive. Through Israel, all people will be blessed. All people will be welcome. And you can add this. You ever hear the Hebrew word shalom? We kind of translate it peace, um, and that's fine, but it's a little bit more than that because it really means something more along the lines of, of like prosperity, wholeness, abundance, of which peace is a major aspect. It's not just the absence of conflict is where I'm going with this. It is the full life and experience without the external attacks, entropy, wearing down. Shalom will be the watchword, the characteristic word of the restoration. Think about how you described Eden. That whole imagery you gave me, well, God was dwelling with people. There there was nothing to be forgiven. The Spirit of God obviously was there, right? Creation was in a state of wholeness. All the pictures you gave me are examples of shalom, right? People didn't die. Hearts were tuned to God. You're you're seeing the seedbed of what these hopes become a longing for. Because these are hopes simply because they're not there anymore. Are you with me? Now, I believe I gave you 10. I don't think I skipped anything in my mind. Was that a full 10? Here's the other two that you'll see. That because creation is under a curse now, because of Genesis chapter 3, when creation is restored... It's going to kind of be like broken. It's going to undergo a wrenching upheaval of sorts. It's going to go through a cataclysmic shock. Almost the idea like, you know, if you, if you, if you want to get the good garden growing, you go in with the weed killers or you go in with the tiller and you raise that, you, you, you know, first. Or um, if you want to fix your mower or your car or something like that, you're pulling the parts out before you're putting the new parts in. You follow the logic? So creation is going to kind of go through this like shock. And number 12, it sounds like bad news, but it could be. But I also want to challenge you to think about it as good news. Evil will be judged and the righteous will be vindicated. Now that makes us kind of mm, precarious because we all know our hearts well enough to kind of have this moment of going, I don't think I'm as good as I am supposed to be. And so what does that mean for me? At the same time, when you suffer under the hands of evil, there's kind of a yearning for how long, O Lord, until you make this right and vindicate your people and think of what the revelation message has been as they've suffered under cruelty and punishment and judgment of this world, right? Those are the characteristics that really make this happen. So all those bridges I gave you give tastes of it. The sacrificial system is bringing a sense of forgiveness, even though it's not here yet completely. The temple is bringing a sense of the presence of God, even though he's not dwelling here. The temple itself is built, and if you read the specs, to resemble Eden. So it's all creation imagery. It's giving us a picture of what it will be like or what Eden was like and so on and so forth. Yeah? I was wondering if you could talk for a minute about efforts from the other direction, and like the guy with the earth to heaven, and I, I always think about uh, Genesis 1, 
great example. Think about it. Yeah, think about this. All of those characteristics that I just mentioned, are they really particularly Christian? Would you argue that those tend to be longings, wishes, or fantasies of any human being? Now, I know you might argue that some will say there is no God, and maybe they don't yearn for God because they just write him off as a fairy tale. But would you also argue with me that even the most hardened of atheists tend to yearn for something transcendent and beyond themselves? Um, maybe you don't think that you've sinned, but most people struggle with a sense of brokenness inside, a sense of wrongdoing inside. Most people have guilt and shame to some degree or have worked the better part of their life to harden themselves against that feeling because it hurts. We all yearn for forgiveness. We all yearn for the presence of the divine or the transcendent to be with us. Maybe you don't yearn for David's son to reign, but we all kind of yearn for a hero figure, don't we? And I think all of us wish that we didn't die and we would just live forever, but not in wasting away decay, right? I mean, we have Ted right over here, and it wasn't a Christian statement going, those stupid squirrels are eating my birdseed. We all yearn for these kinds of restorations of the earth. To, uh, you follow me. These are not Christian hopes. These are human hopes. Because God has placed these human hopes in the heart. The biblical understanding would be each of us are hardwired to yearn for these things because this is, in fact, what God is trying to do. The problem with those who don't know the God of the Bible and his revealed word is not that they don't know the hope. It's that they don't know what that hope is going to look like. They don't have it articulated. They don't have it specified. So it's vague inklings that Israel and the people of God are meant to bring clarity to by going, let me tell you how God is actually going to do it. And let me tell you how you're actually going to be able to receive it and get there. So what that means is you have throughout human history, people on earth trying to find various ways to bridge the gap. The Tower of Babel is a great example. It's fuzzy, it's vague, it's convoluted, it's confused, but it's based out of that yearning. How much energy is spent today? How, I mean, how multi-billion dollar is the industry for health and beauty and fitness and self-help and counseling and all these things that we're doing trying to seek change, wholeness, forgiveness, shalom. You with me on this? So yeah. Yeah, brother. Right. Yeah. You got it. You got it. It is hardwired into who we are. This is the storyline of the Old Testament. And if it helps you to put a big OT in the middle, go that way. I don't care. I'm not going to do it because this will get cluttered. Then you hit Christ. And the entire point, I hate to make like Jesus a means to an end, but 
the whole climax in the storyline is that in Jesus, God has bridged to earth. And so if you think through the Gospels, what do you see? Well, think of those characteristics. God is now actually physically dwelling on earth. Jesus, when he's nailed to a cross and raises from the dead, ushers in a full forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit is shared by him. And then later after he ascends to heaven, which by the way is David's son raising and taking his throne, all right, as a rule over the kingdom, right? You have him pouring the Holy Spirit out. You see people being born again. Hearts are being changed. But you also see miracles, people being healed, right? Bodies are being changed. You see Jesus multiplying five loaves and two fish to feed the masses. You see Jesus calming storms and walking on water. Creation is being, shall I say, restored, if you will. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, are the literal words for Jesus' mouth. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. This is shalom talk, beginning to end. You see Jesus going out to Israel, but saying things like this, not come back to the promised land, but blessed are the meek, for they will inherit because it ain't just the promised land in, in 150 square miles anymore. The whole earth is becoming a promised land, right? You see how it's exploding out. And of course, what do we see in Jesus' ministry? Gentiles, left and right, are coming in. What you see somewhat more absent in Jesus' ministry, though, are the judgment characteristics. It's not that they're not present, but they're far less than all of what I would call these grace characteristics. And I think there's something telling there to the heart of God. But it isn't absent completely because you see things like on Good Friday where the sun turns to darkness and you see the earthquakes happening over the death of the Son of God and judgment on the temple by it being destroyed. And, and you do see elements. You see God calling the religious leaders broods of vipers, snakes, serpents, if you will, but you see God kind of, Christ kind of reserving some of the judgment in its direct punch as opposed to the grace. But what this means is when you get into the New Testament, post-Christ, you have a bleed over. Heaven and earth are not quite married yet. But the lines are now being blurred and you see a greater enmeshment of heaven and earth, if you will, because Christ is now reigning in heaven. A way that I've heard this described, it's an analogy that I like, is a World War II analogy. And the analogy is this. We are looking for what I would call Victory Europe Day or Victory Japan Day, but let's go European theater. We are looking for victory over Berlin or the complete overthrow of the Axis regime. If this is VE Day, this is D Day. 
So, Normandy has been stormed. The Allies have taken a foothold. And from here on out, it is pure advance onto the enemy capital. But make no mistake, you still got to do the Battle of the Bulge. You still have to do Okinawa and Iwo Jima. You still have to do, there's a lot of blood to be shed, a lot of brutal, hard battles to be carried out. And so don't make it all like, you know, rainbows and roses here. But we see the conflict between the two kingdoms smashing against each other as Christ is and his kingdom is invading. And the way he does this, the presence points or the in, these insurrection or insurgent lines might be things like this, the Holy Spirit being poured out, spiritual gifts being given to all people and, and, and people who are born again, which means God's power being channeled through you. Sometimes in what we would see is ordinary ways. Sometimes in what we would see is extraordinary ways. So through the book of Acts, you see people being healed. Jesus himself said, you'll do greater things than these. And whether it's kindness, mercy, patience, faith, healing, tongues, whatever you want to call it, God, boom, boom, boom. He's doing it through an agent called the church. And I don't mean an institution and the way people think of churches. I mean the people of God gathering in his name, where he's pouring out his blessing. He's pouring out his great, his grace. He's channeling through. And so this is the New Testament era. Where is it leading? Now, fundamentally, it is leading towards Christ who reigns in heaven returning to earth, right? Now, at the beginning of this today, I told you I'm intentionally not going to get into all the millennium stuff because we've covered that already, at least introductory, and I don't want to confuse the timeline. Two, it's not really important. I mean, it's important. It's in the Bible. But if you're more concerned with the millennium than you are Christ's return and the end game, you're missing the ultimate hope. So what we're looking for is Christ's return. And what we will call that is not judgment day. What we will call that is vindication day. Because from a Christian perspective, it is not a fear of judgment. It is God finally returning to right all wrongs and to usher in that whole list of promises I gave you earlier in full amount. Who doesn't want that? And so, after Vindication Day, what you have is... And do it with an arrow, because it goes on forever. Eden restored. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the new, and I saw the, 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 the holy city, the new Jerusalem, dressed as a bride beautifully for her husband, coming down from heaven from God. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with humanity, and he will be with them, and they will be his people, and he will be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new, renewed, restored. The end time hope is Eden, which means fundamental to the Christian hope is not heaven as people tend to think about it. What eternity is, is what you told me about back here. That's what you've got to root in, and that's what that imagery in Revelation is drawing on. Now, will it look exactly the same? No, not quite. There will be both continuity and discontinuity. And I'll talk about it in two basic ways. One in terms of the landscape and one in terms of the human experience or person. Landscape first. Did you notice that Genesis 1 through 3 is called the what of Eden? Garden. But what do we see by actual verbiage in Revelation 21 and 22? What kind of physical space? City. What's bigger, a city or a garden? Now, when you think of a garden, don't think of a tomato plot, you know? Gardens in the ancient world are like going to the botanical gardens or the Morton Arboretum or a national park. You've got to think about it in those terms. What we see is a development because in the beginning, before the fall, God had given humanity a charge. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule over the earth and subdue it, which doesn't mean rape it and destroy it for your own selfish gain. But what it does mean is this. Play God with my creation. God builds it, and he says, I want you to rule. That's why he says, rule over it. You are going to be my representatives here on earth, humanity, to nurture it, take care of it, because there's a lot of species. There's a lot of animal life. There's a lot of insect life. There's a lot of uh, plant life, right? There's a whole wonderful array of what God has built here, and he goes, manage it, take care of it, cultivate it, develop it. And so that is a fundamentally good enterprise work is good. There's a sense that you get between the two Edens or between the two trees that that which is good that has been developed will somehow sustain and carry forward. I like how 1 Corinthians 3 puts this. And I think more is going on here, but I think this does at least have analogous connection where he says, you know, when the end comes, when the day of the Lord comes, those who have built with like straw and hay, well, it's going to be burned up, right? And they'll be saved as ones merely escaping through the flames. But those who have built with, with silver and gold and costly stones, their work will shine forth and it'll show for what it is. The idea that that which you have built and developed and honed and, and that humanity has as well will echo into eternity if you will, but purified with the chaff built up. So we see garden to city. Make sense? I know I'm going through a lot, but I'm racing the clock. I'm trying to do 90 minutes in like 35. 
Number two, what are you going to be like? Well, I think it's very important to remember that you will be physical. My dad is dead. His soul is here, naked. His body is basically in a box on my brother's shelf. All right? That is not how God intended the human experience to be. So the dead are going to be raised. Body and soul are going to come together. Are you a body and soul combined right now? So who you are right now, arguably, can be a greater analogy to what the future or the resurrection state is like than the current death state. It's weird. They, we each have an advantage. If you're dead, well, your soul's with the Lord, and that's better by far. So in one sense, okay, they're experiencing something that we're not. But by us drawing breath in being physical, we're experiencing something they're not. The best analogy to try to understand this, because the Bible doesn't give us nearly enough information, is Jesus. Jesus is the template for the resurrected body. Think about Jesus after he rose from the dead. He's like a marriage of heaven and earth in one being. He's definitely physical, right? He can be touched, hugged. He can eat and does. Um, he invites people to put their hands in his wombs. So his scars remain even. You see like the continuity? But now they're not like points of pain or disability. Now they're like trophies, right? At the same time, Jesus can like apparate into a room. Like, like they're all locked in a room. This is like basic gospel stuff. And like, boom, Jesus is there. Jesus can somewhat mask his identity. Like they don't recognize him or realize him. Mary thinks he's a gardener, right? They're out fishing and they don't recognize him at first. They're walking with him on the Emmaus Road and not until he breaks bread with them do they go, oh, there's some sense of continuity and discontinuity. And you can read 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to get into this. But what it'll talk about is that when you plant a seed, it doesn't look the same when it grows, would you, would you agree? What looks better, what grows or what you planted? What grows, right? Think of your body the exact same way. And that's the analogy that 1 Corinthians 15 will use, is that when you die, it's like a seed planted in the ground. But when God raises you to life from the earth, hear the plant metaphor in that? Oh, you are going to be shining. You are going to be transformed, renewed, glorified. That is the Eden hope. That is what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is setting up. And Revelation 21 and 22 is answering in how the entire Bible fits in between. Now, I got to end because of time. We have one more week, and it's just going to kind of be a big debrief week and some talking about like Jesus saying, I'm coming soon and how to understand that. Um, bring questions next week as we land the plane in Revelation. But I'll leave this final thing. If your chart looks horribly ugly and this is helpful tool to you that you want, I will email you the one that I drew for myself. So if you want that, come talk to me. If you don't want it, no harm, no foul. God bless. Thanks for coming. Have a great, great rest of your weekend.